We've been working our way through Romans 8 all summer, actually, if you've been paying attention. And it's, it's what some would call the greatest chapter in all the Bible. And I've got to tell you that I'm of that thinking, right? If, if you had to ask me if there's one chapter in all the Bible that you could have if you're stranded on some deserted island, I don't know why they would say you only get one chapter if you're on a deserted island, but work with me here. I would choose chapter 8 of Romans without a shadow of a doubt because it's so detailed in the immense privileges that are ours because we're in Christ, right? And, and we get to see that, and Christ is in us. And so I want to remind ourselves where we have come from um, already in starting with Romans, when Nate Adams actually kicked off this sermon series. So imagine with me that you and I are going to go hiking up a, a huge mountain. Now, if you talk to my wife, that could be a dangerous thing because you sometimes could break a leg and we might get lost and, and wander for about 15 miles. But this one I think is pretty safe, right? So imagine we're trekking up the mountain of Romans 8. And if you remember where we first begun, when we started this journey, you'd remember that because of what Christ has done in his life, death, and resurrection, that all who are in Christ, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? And, and so we are justified is what the Bible would teach in regards to that. But, but it doesn't end there, that God then gives us his spirit, right? And, and we, we are then spirit-indwelt believers, which is, is an amazing privilege to think about. And the Spirit's active in our life. And He causes us to set our mind on the things of the Spirit, not on the things of the flesh, which were our old nature. But he, now He's given us real presence because He dwells in us. And He's given us real power to live lives of obedience, to live lives that are holy. Essentially, you and I are becoming what we already are in heaven, which is righteous, right? And that starts to work itself out in the way that you and I are living because the Spirit delivered us from the reigning power of sin in our lives. He has set us free to live holy lives. And so we've been climbing this mountain and each step as we go up, we look back and it gets to be more and more beautiful. Well, I got to tell you today, we actually reach the pinnacle of what I would say is the gospel. And you're like, we're not even close to done with the chapter 8 thing going on. But everything else after this is just unfolding the reality of what is. Now, you might disagree with me that this isn't the pinnacle of the gospel. But I'm going to give you two people who would say, yeah, that's absolutely right. There's a man named Sinclair Ferguson you may have heard of, you may not have. He said, the notion that we are children of God, his own sons and daughters, is the mainspring of Christian living. Our sonship to God is the apex of creation and the goal of redemption. And so maybe you're like, well, I don't know him. Maybe you've heard of J.I. Packer. Okay, he, he went to be with the Lord this week. And, and he was speaking of God adopting sinners into his family. He said, is the highest privilege the gospel offers? I would say amen to that. But maybe you're still not sure. Well, then maybe you'll believe the Apostle Paul. And so that's bringing us to the text of Romans 8. 14 through 17. That's going to be the text that we're looking at today. So follow along. I'm going to read the thing in whole, and then we're going to work our way through it for the rest of our time. It says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided 
that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. That's our text, right? And, and man, this is, this is such, I mean, all the Bible is amazing because all the Bible is inspired and breathed out by God. It's profitable. It's good for us. It's sweeter than honey. But, but this text is, is magnificent, right? In, in order for us to understand the magnitude of the gospel, you and I must understand divine adoption, It's imperative that we do. See, twice in that text, in verse 14 and 15, we are called sons of God. In in verse 16 and 17, we're called children of God. And this is a staggering claim, right? It's a staggering claim because there's a profound impact that every area of our lives will be impacted by this truth. I mean, it definitely would have had an impact on that first century believers in the early church, right? Like, but my concern... My concern is that in our cultural environment right now, that it doesn't land with as much force or as much awe as it should. And I think there's many reasons for that. However, I think there's, there's really one main reason why it doesn't land with as much force. And it's because we have a wrong understanding. Many times people think, well, we're all God's children. I mean, every human being is God's child, right? So what's the big deal? Or maybe we, we actually make the mistake of thinking we're worthy of adoption, right? Like, if, I used to collect baseball cards, right? And so you'd look at statistics on the back, and we think, man, I'm like a first-round draft pick. Of course God wants me on his team. I'm an awesome kid. But actually, one card I never collected was what's called garbage pail kids. You ever heard of these things? They were nasty, but they were funny because you got this disgusting little garbage pail kid with like, this gross stuff on it. And, and you're like, man, no, no way God, God would want that person. But can I tell you something? The gospel is that God chooses those wretched, vile, garbage pail kids and brings them into the family. God doesn't adopt us because we're lovable. He makes us lovable and brings us into the family. And so this should hit us with real force when we think about it. My guess is there's people right now thinking, so you're saying that we're not all God's children? And the quick answer to that is, yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying because that's what the Bible teaches, that no, we are not all God's children. We're all God's creatures. We're all made in God's image. We all have value because we are humans made in God's image, but you and I are not all God's children. Not at all. As a matter of fact, there really are only two family lines in all the world. There is Adam's family line, which, by the way, you, you want to know what they're titled as or, or what I was titled as until God adopt me is sons of disobedient, children of wrath. And then there's, there's those who are in Christ. And those are the ones who are God's children, right? One's born by nature. One must be born again. And so the, the question, this begs the question, you might be asking, well, how can I know if I'm a child of God? Right? How can I know that? What makes us a child of God? And, and, and if you answer that, then how can I know that I am? Well, verse 16 says that the Spirit will bear witness or testify to our spirit that you and I are children of God. The question is, though, is how does that work? How does he testify? Right? Like, well, look again at verse 14, and it becomes clear that those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Does that answer your question? Well, kind of, 
right? Because it depends what you shove into that text, right? If you're not careful, you can make the mistake of thinking whatever you want when it says being led by the Spirit of God, right? So the Spirit leads me to listen to good music. You know, I only listen to Christian music. Or the Spirit might lead me to only watch appropriate movies or to wear appropriate clothing or to marry the right person or to work the right job. The Spirit leads me to do that. That's how I know that I'm a child of God. But that is all subjective and that is not what the text says. It's not what the text says. As a matter of fact, the Spirit here leads us into lives that are living lives of holiness. And, and the reason I say that is because we're going to go back to verse 13, which if you were not at the outdoor uh, service that we had at the Jamboree, you didn't actually get to hear. And so Pastor Mike preached verse 12 and 13. But we cannot lose connection from verse 14 with verse 13. Because verse 14, even though it starts a new sentence, it begins with the word for. And and another way to say that is because, right? And because of that word, it connects us to verse 13. And in context, it says that those who are led by the Spirit of God are those who are led to put to death the deeds of the body. Do you see that? Right? Or to slaughter sin. Essentially, the Spirit leads us to hate what God hates. Okay, And so first fill in the blank. God's children are those who are led by the Spirit to hate sin and by God's grace to put it to death. To put it to death. Right now, this is what it means to be led by the Spirit in this context. Yes, He leads us. He bears witness that we are children of God. And it is clear that the Spirit of God has not, if he has not entered you, you are not a child of God. But the, the opposite is true as well. If he has entered you, you are the, truly a child of God because of what Christ has done. The gift of adoption becomes ours not through being born, but by being born again. And we'll see that looking at John chapter 1, verse 12 and 13. So look with me. It says, But to all who did receive him, who received Christ, who believed in his name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So you must be born again to be a child of God. No one comes into this world a child of God. You must be born again into this family. This text teaches that none of us have a proper relationship with God by nature. That we must come into a right relationship. Becoming a child of God requires faith in Jesus Christ. It requires receiving Him for all that He is in His life, death, and resurrection and believing in what He says about Himself. And it's a stunning gift of grace that must be received by faith. This is not natural. It's supernatural. Right? Like, it's amazing. Once God the Father adopts us, we move from being sons of disobedience We move from being children of wrath to being children of God and children of blessing. We have the delight of the Father because of what Christ has done in our place. You not only see that in John's Gospel as we just looked at, but you can clearly see it in the text that we're looking at today. So look again with me in verse 15. Because you did not, it says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. See, the gift of adoption is it's simply received. Jesus comes to get you, and you see him for all his beauty, and you receive this gift. You receive it by faith. It's a gift. 
It's nothing that you and I can do. We do not need to work hard to earn adoption, not by behaving better. You don't get to negotiate your way into heaven. You don't get to negotiate your way into the family. You can't say, like, God, I promise to clean my life up and behave better if you would just bring me into the family. That's not how it works. It's just simply received. You and I have been adopted, and now God is your father because of what Christ has done not because of anything that you or I have done or could do. We have real relationship with God, and it's not some cold or distant relationship. He is not some like cruel absentee deity, right, who, who just like brings us into the family, but he has nothing to do with us or treats us as slaves to do his bidding. That is not the relationship we have with God by grace. No, we're not puppets on a string. God has freely chosen to adopt us, to love us, to live with us, and to bless us with him, with himself. This is an amazing thing. And only the gospel, only the good news of Jesus Christ offers this kind of relationship with God. There is no other religion that offers anything like this. As a matter of fact, all other false religions and every religion other than the gospel of Jesus Christ is false, offers like some little G God that actually doesn't exist, but you end up becoming a cruel subject in their plot and in their game where you have to constantly do things and you're always curious, is this God pleased with me? Because it's based on works. Gospel truth is based on Jesus's work. And there's a big difference here. See, our relationship with God is based solely and completely on a legal act of God performed by Jesus in our place. It's a substitutionary work of Jesus. And this is such an important truth for us to grasp because it will change everything we think about as we live our lives. To understand what this text is actually saying, it requires Holy Spirit power. It requires truth. It requires the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to see and understand. But it also requires that you and I understand what was adoption in a Roman society. See, in that particular time and culture, adoption would occur when, when an adult who had some serious bank, and, and, and lots of, uh, let's say, you know, land and things that they want to give so that their legacy could keep going on had no male children. And so what they would do is they would then go and adopt someone. And it could be a child. It could be a teen. It could actually be an adult. And, and the moment that that happened, several things actually took place immediately for the new son. First of all, all his old and legal debts and legal ob- obligations were paid in full. That's a pretty good deal, right? Second is he actually got a name that was the name of the person who inherited and brought them in. And he became an inheritor of all that the father had. And his father instantly became liable for all his actions going forward. So like you really are family. And because it's true for their adoption then, well, it's true for our adoption spiritually. And and what makes that amazing is it's such a costly process. Now, they would do that then because they needed their legacy to carry on. But God doesn't need anything. He does this out of his own kindness, out of his own goodness. God the Father lovingly adopts us as his sons and his daughters through the work of his perfect son, Jesus. And it was extremely costly to bring us into the family. It would require the perfect blood of Jesus Christ in order to bring us into the family of God. God adopts nasty, 
vile sinners into his family by sheer grace. And that's good news. Because if it was up to me to get into the family of God, it's not happening. And my guess is the same is true for you. See, we have been adopted by sons and daughters by God in order to experience freedom and joy of salvation by having the God whose wrath used to bear hot against us and now his delight is upon us because we're in Christ. That's what this text is saying. See, get this. The gospel means that I am a child of God before I'm anything else. Right before I am a husband, I'm a child of God. Before I'm a father, I'm a child of God. Before I'm a pastor, before you name it, my identity must be rooted and grounded in the truth that I am a child of God by grace alone. You and I are rich, my friends. We are rich in the gospel because we're adopted children of God with complete and direct access to the Father. And this is stunning. However, many times you and I can make the mistake of living day by day as though this reality is not true for us. We can live as though we are somehow slaves instead of sons. It's as though we are given this gift of amazing grace, but we attempt to give it back so that you and I can work to earn our way into God's good grace. And that would be a mistake, but I see people do it all the time. As a matter of fact, I'm tempted to do it often, and that's why I must remind myself of what's true about the gospel and God's love for me in spite of me. My question is, is that you, though? Is that you? And, and how you hear this text could be an indicator of your understanding of your adoption in God. So let me read a text to you. It's from John 14, 15. It's well known. But I want you to think about how you hear this text. So if you love me, Jesus says, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments Believe it or not, there's actually two ways to hear that text. One is, if you love me, you'll do what I tell you to do. You'll keep my commandments. You'll prove your love for me. And that's how many people hear it. I've heard it used that way. It's like they take a stick and they start beating you with it, right? It's like, okay, wow, thanks. That was helpful. But I would, I would argue that's not what this text says. As a matter of fact, I would say Jesus is saying in that moment, he says, listen, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. You will. It's, it's the same thing I do with my daughter when she was young. I would look at her and I'd be like, Sarah, listen, does daddy love you? Yeah, daddy, I know you love me. Okay, will you, will you listen to me? Why? So that she can like, prove she loves me? No, because I love her. And what I'm asking her to do is good for her. And so maybe that doesn't help you. Well, let me try to shed more light on it. And, and I got some help from a man named Tim Keller. And, and, and really what he did is he took the word slave from this text and he took the word son and he said, so... Here's how slaves interact with their masters. Here's how sons interact with their fathers. So slaves obey under pressure because they have to. You must do it, right? But sons, they obey out of love for joy in their father, right? Big difference in how we receive that. Slaves, they actually work under the threat of pain or loss, punishment, payback, right? But sons, even if we are disciplined, it's not punitive, but it's loving instruction. God disciplines those whom he loves, right? Slave, well, they're insecure. If I slip up, my master might beat me. My master might abuse me. But a son has security, right? If I slip up, my father's going to forgive me. 
He, he died. He sent Jesus to die for me while I was ungodly. Of course he would forgive me now that I'm covered by the blood of Christ, now that I'm in the family. He loved me while I was a weak, ungodly sinner. Of course he loves me now that I've been adopted into his family. A slave concentrates on external behavior and compliance with rules. It's all of religion. A son concentrates on relationship and attitudes within that relationship. A slave has to work but is given no honor, but a son is honored and invited to join the work. Oh, what a good God we have. See, if you find yourself struggling with a slavish mentality, and, and if that's you, listen, that doesn't mean you might not be born again. You could be absolutely born again but have bad thinking then what I would encourage you to do is to cry out to your heavenly Father, Abba, Father, change my mind. Help me to see how you see me through the lens of Christ. Help me to be reminded that I'm in Christ and that you love me not because of anything that I've done, but because of everything that Christ has done in my place and on my behalf. Because here's the thing, many times we make the mistake of thinking the gospel is like receiving some pardon or release from death row. But we stop there. And most people do stop there in their understanding of the gospel. And I get it. It's conceivable that God would pardon us, wipe our record clean, and expect us to then walk the straight and narrow path the rest of our lives. The problem is, is that's not good news. Because if we could be honest, you and I would end up on death row once again. Because because I don't know about you, but I've not loved the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, strength. And, and love my neighbor as myself perfectly since Jesus saved me. How about you? Yeah, so we would end up once again under law. Instead, though, the gospel is much more radical in nature. The gospel, it, it's as though we've committed high treason against this holy, righteous God. In, the only God in all the universe. And we stand condemned before Him. We are guilty. And we know we're guilty. And everybody's an eyewitness that we're guilty. And we're without hope. Right? But then, but God. God sends His Son to come and, and to take our place. This innocent Son comes. He takes our place on death row and He receives our execution in our place. Now, a lot of people, that's like, that's where it stops. Like, woohoo, that's awesome. And that is awesome. But that's not where it ends because in a strange turn of events, the judge steps down off the stand. He forgives us. But not only that, he embraces us and he brings us into his family and he calls us his son. He calls us his daughter and he brings us into the family and he treats us as though we are his perfect son who is just executed in our place. That's the gospel. I mean, that's the gospel. Our record has not only been wiped clean, but Jesus' perfect record has been placed in our account and it has been written there forever and it will not change. We are fully justified. We are fully adopted. We are fully His children. Nothing can change that. Because He's a great God. Not because we're great kids. Adoption is a costly gift of grace. In Christ alone, we're adopted. And we receive all the benefits and blessings that are in Christ. Think about that. Why? Because he has graciously chosen to share them with us. We have Jesus to thank for everything that we have spiritually forever. And we'll have all eternity to thank him, to praise him, to worship him, to love him. But I want to look at five privileges that we can see from this text. And I want to spend the rest of our time looking at them. So the first one we have is security. Okay, the first one we have is security. You'll see it in the first part of verse 15. 
You have received the spirit of adoption as sons. See, we are not to fear, but we're to enjoy being a child of God. It's not drudgery, right? It's it's a delight to think about the God of all the universe looks upon you, and if you're in Christ, delights in you, loves you, has real affection for you. This should be... This should be a thing that gives us humble confidence and boldness because we're a child of God. You, do you know my Father? Like That should be the attitude of the Christian. But it doesn't make us proud. It makes us humble because He didn't adopt us because we're awesome. He adopted us because He is amazing. Think about how children approach their parents when they're young and they, they feel safe and they live in a good home. I got to experience it this week. Uh, Jesse and I were invited to go to a, a friend of ours uh, who, who actually attend the Indiana campus, Katie and Galen. We went to their house, and they have this sweet girl, man. She is, she is a lot. She is two, and she is full of life. And she rides horses, like full-grown horses at two years old. And I'm thinking, this is stunning. But her parents, man, they love horses. But can I tell you something? This girl ran around the house completely secure of the love of her parents. I mean, she was dirty. She had pudding all over her or something. I mean, and she's making a wreck. And she's not worried about mom or dad getting angry with her because they've created this environment. But then later on in that evening, as she was getting tired and probably ready for bed, she actually, she pinched her fingers. And it was amazing to see how she ran towards her father and how he scooped her up and how he loved her and how he embraced her and how secure she felt in that moment. I use that to illustrate this, by God's grace and the power of the Spirit, ought to be our response to God the Father. We have security with Him. This is to be us and God. Now, don't picture little kids jumping on Jesus' lap. It's not what I'm talking about. That kind of corniness can stay somewhere else. I mean, He is God, but He's your Father, and He does embrace you. He does love you. He does offer you security. He gives you the spirit of adoption. That is the peace that brings us security. See, here's the thing. We are to approach our father not as a slave who obeys him out of fear, but as a son who delights in him. My question is, when you sin, do you run from God or to God? That'd be a real question that I want to ask. And I want you to think about it. You don't have to answer out loud. I don't want you to answer out loud. But if you run from him, my friend, you still need to understand the depths of the gospel. Because you don't need to run from Him. There is no more punishment for you. There is no more wrath for you. You can run fully to Him and know that He's going to forgive you. He's going to love you. He's going to... He has wiped your record clean, but He will continue to forgive you, continue to embrace you, continue to make you more like His Son. He's given you real security in that. For the child of God, there's no punishment. When we receive Jesus by faith, then God receives us as sons and daughters. That's a stunning thought. And therefore, we can approach him boldly. We can approach him boldly. Do you understand that because of what Christ has done, you and I are as righteous and holy as Jesus Christ in the presence of God in heaven right now? That's what the, that's what the Bible teaches. Oh, I pray that the Holy Spirit would pound that into your head, into your heart right now. See, that's why we have security. Because it's not reliant upon us. It's, it's based on everything Christ has done for us. Which gives us real intimacy, which is the next thing. Right? Intimacy. See it in the second half of verse 15. We have intimacy with God. It says, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. 
Right? Like we cry. Don't miss that word cry. It, it's crying out of the heart. Right? It's interesting that the Apostle Paul uses an Aramaic word, Abba, to, to Romans. Who, who They don't speak Aramaic. Why does he do that? Well, the fact that he did it should stand out to us. It should cause us to take notice. And, and I'm, I'm sure when, when this is being read to the early church in Rome, they're wondering, like, why that word? Well, here's the thing. This word conveys something that many languages can't grasp. It's an intimate and loving word for father. That's what it is. The same word that Jesus cried out in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before he goes to the cross, he cries out, Abba, Father. Okay, this spirit that now resides in all who believe cries out in the same manner. Right? Do you, do you see that? Jesus died on the cross in order to give us an amazing privilege of calling God Abba. Abba, Father. It's a beautiful thing. It is not a cold, distant deity. Listen to what Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote in his commentary on this particular word. Abba, he said, was a word lisped by a little child. Let us notice the word cry. We cry, Abba, Father. It is a very strong word. And clearly the apostle has used it quite deliberately. It means a loud cry. It expresses deep emotion. What then does it imply? Obviously, real knowledge of God. God is no longer to us a distant God. He is not merely a God in whom we believe intellectually, theologically, theoretically, doctrinally only. All of this is possible to one who is not a child of God at all. Our worship and praying are spontaneous. It is spontaneity of the child who sees the Father, and not only spontaneity, but confidence confidence father right like so so this might be a strange thing you might even have a relationship strain with your real father and that might be a real challenge but can I tell you that the Holy Spirit will help you with that I've met many people in my life where they they didn't have a great relationship with their earthly father and it affected in a lot of ways how they saw God as father but can I tell you something that may explain where you're at but the Holy Spirit can change your mind so that you can understand that you don't need to judge God based on your earthly father that your heavenly father is perfect and that you can trust him, that you can love him, and that you can cry out to him and know that he hears you, that he loves you, that he sees you, and that he'll never take that love for granted because he's perfect. You can trust him. And, and that gives us assurance, right? Which is the next thing I want us to see from this text. See, it says in verse 16, it says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. See, the other way that the Spirit bears witness is, to our spirit is that we cry out to our Father in prayer. So, so remember, the, the first assurance is that we hate sin. We hate what God hates. We hate what our Father hates. But we also love what the Spirit loves, and the Spirit loves the Father. He loves to cry out to His Father. And, and because the Spirit is indwelt in all who believe, we love to cry out to our Father. right? And so it's not just reciting empty words. It's not just like, Abba, Father. Father. It's not that. No, you could train. Well, you don't actually train it. I mean, I'm sure Drew could correct me on this, but you could get electronic devices to say, Abba, Father. Right? I'm sure you could get Siri to say it, or you could get some other electronic to say it, but that's not what I'm talking about. Smartphones could say that. That's not what's being said here. 
I'm telling you, listen, those who are not Christians rarely, if ever, call God their father. They, they will say God. They will say Lord. But, but you almost never in a moment of desperation when no one's even like thinking about it, but they realize I'm in trouble, they cry out Father. If you've ever done that, well, praise God, the Spirit's bearing witness to your spirit that you truly are a child of God. However, those, listen, those who have come to taste and see that the Lord is good through the gospel should cry out with a loud voice, Abba, Father, in all our times of need. And, and we should communicate with him all the time. Why? Because the Spirit communicates with the Father. The Spirit's in us. You can learn a lot about someone by their prayer life. You really can. And, and here's the thing. When a child is in need, they, they never say in some monotone, cold voice, this root, right? Like, Father, Father, I'm just having a bad day, Father. They, they don't do that. There was a time when my daughter and I were at Kennywood, and, and there was, it was back when we were allowed to like not, we didn't have to social distance. We could just like be around each other. We could even get sweat on one another, and we could spill drinks on one another, and there'd be lines, and, and it was a great time. I remember it wasn't all that long ago, but she was like wandering away, and I'm watching her. She's not going out of my sight. I'm seeing where she's going, but she doesn't know that I'm seeing her, and she's a much smaller girl at that time, and she can't see. And she realizes, I don't know where my daddy is. And she cries out, Dad! Daddy! And I already knew where she was at, so I, I lovingly go over, and I grab her hand, and she, man, she white-knuckled me, right? You know what I mean by that? She grabbed a hold of me, and it was like, I'm never letting you go. But it was never her strength that held her to me. It was my strength that kept her close to me. And so I lovingly walked her back. But she cried out to her father, and her father went and got her. And I'm not a perfect father, but your father in heaven is. And when you cry out to him, he hears you. And you might have been wondering, but you've never wandered out of his sight. He knows where you're at. He sees you. He loves you. And he's got you. You are in the palm of his hand, and he'll never let you go. Even when you think you've let him go, he's got you. And that is that's amazing. That should give you assurance. And, and, the, and the Spirit wants you to have assurance. And so if you wrestle with this, ask Him. He loves to answer those prayers. And I feel like the guy on ShamWow. But wait, there's more, right? Like, but we get an inheritance, right? I, I want you to see that. Look at, at, at 17, the first portion of it. It says, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. <laughs> okay. That's mission impossible, by the way. Seriously, to unpack that, I need at least you guys to hang out with me for one solid week. Are you up for that? One guy said yes, the rest of you said no, finish up. Okay, so I'll finish up. But you should spend the rest of your life thinking about this. You really should. Because here's the deal. Heirs of God, it says. Fellow heirs with Christ. Now, I want you to think about it. If you're an heir of a homeless person, it's not that exciting. It's really not. Like, what will you get? You, you may get, and I don't say this flippantly, but you're not going to get much that you're going to be excited about. But if you are an heir of Bill Gates, you, well, you might be like, I don't like Bill Gates, but you might like what Bill Gates got, right? And so you would get all that he has. Okay, I'm a little more excited, right? But, but to be an heir of God, of Almighty God, who owns everything in all creation, there's nothing that he has not created, he owns everything, and you're an heir of that, that is a staggering thought that you and I, my friend, cannot comprehend. We just can't comprehend it. But I want to try. I really do want to try. 
So let's do that. This means that we have an astonishing future. <laughs> like that's, I, I'm trying to think of words, astonishing. There's no word to, to make you think about what it's going to be like to have a new heaven and a new earth. See, the greatest part of this inheritance is that you and I will get glorified bodies, but that's not the greatest part, but it is part of it. It's so that you and I then can enjoy the glory of God unhinged forever. I mean, that's stunning to think about. To think about in a billion years, right now, in a billion years, we're not going to exhaust the beauty of God. There will come a time, John, listen, you're going to be like, brother, did you know that? I'll be like, no, I had no clue, man. I didn't know that. He'd be like, I know, that's amazing. A billion years. And then for another billion years, he's inexhaustible. And you inherit him. See, that's the greatest gift of the gospel. Mark this down. God as our Father is the greatest gift of our inheritance. If you, my friend, are looking for anything more than you're looking forward to meeting your maker face to face and having your faith become real sight and getting the treasure that your heart longs for, which is God Almighty, then I want you to ask God for forgiveness. If you're more excited about seeing someone who has died and gone to be with the Lord, it's good to long for that. But if you long for that person more than you long for the person and work of Jesus Christ, then my friend, you're an idolater. What's beautiful is that we get the Lamb of God who was slain. And we get to worship Him. And we get glorified bodies where, where we can actually enjoy Him forever in a way that you and I can't comprehend right now. See, like even gold is just asphalt in heaven. And actually it's not even in heaven because Jesus is going to come back and He's going to make this whole thing new. You're going to get a new earth which is stunning, without sin, where he dwells with us. That's exactly what Revelation 21, verse 3 through 4 says. And listen, he says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no more sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. The beautiful thing is not that your tears get wiped away, it's that you get God. You get God. And, and He dwells with you forever. And He's given you His Spirit now, so you don't even have to wait for heaven. But it becomes more real than even the substance that you're looking at right now. We cannot comprehend this. Jesus is the heir of all that the Father has. And he has chosen to share his inheritance with us. Like, do you get it? Do you get it? Because, I, I mean, there's times I don't get it. There's just times I don't get it. And so I just say, Father, help me. Abba, help me. I want to get it. I want to see you more. Open my eyes to see how glorious you are now. See, when Jesus returns and he is coming back and the kingdom of God is fully established, this will include resurrected, glorified bodies and entrance into the kingdom, the new heavens, the new earth, which will be, by the way, a huge family gathering of all the saints who ever was. Right? And, and we will worship Jesus. We will feast with Jesus. We will celebrate at the table of our Father. 
And it's all because of what Christ has done. He's an amazing God. This is going to happen. This will happen. You can be assured of it. You can be assured of it without a shadow of doubt because Jesus resurrected from the grave and he's poured out his spirit on all who believe. No matter how difficult the current times are or will be in the future, there's, there's no promise this thing gets better. Okay, I don't know if you've read the same Bible I have, but it could. It could. There were times in World War II where everybody thought this is probably it, but then we had seasons where it flourished. But can I tell you something? Flourishing is in the presence of God, not your circumstances. And so you can flourish now by God's grace. Remember that all suffering is temporary for the children of God because, listen, your father is sovereign, which means he's in control of all things, and he's good. And that includes he's sovereign over COVID-19. He's sovereign over riots. He's sovereign over elections and everything else in the universe. But I want you to understand, I'm not saying you won't suffer because the Bible doesn't say you will not suffer. We can't get away from the text. That's what it says. It'd been great if it would have stopped there. It didn't stop there. I want you to notice that suffering is is not non-existent for the children of God. Suffering is actually a real reality for those who follow in their big brother Jesus' footsteps. See it right here. Look, and, and by the way, I would call this provision. This is a good thing that God gives, not suffering in and of itself, but what God does in and through suffering. So look at the text with me. Once again, it's the last portion of verse 17. It says, provided. <laughs> That's an interesting word that he uses there. Provided we suffer with him, comma, in order so that we may also be glorified with him. See, this text seems to say that our glory with God as our Father is somehow conditional on the fact that we suffer with him. And uh, the reason it appears that way is because that's actually what it says. And that should cause you to do, right? Like, wait a minute, that, that doesn't fit with my theology. Well, it's time your theology gets changed to the word of God. Because here's the deal. The way of Christ is suffering before glory. And if we're going to follow in Christ's footsteps, if we're going to follow Jesus, then you and my friend will suffer. Now, it's different for everyone, but this is a staggering thought to think about. And the reason it's staggering is because in our cultural climate, this is unheard of, right? And this is because people have subscribed to what I would call easy believism. Actually, that's not my phrase. Someone else phrased it. I don't know who that was. Give them credit. But easy believism is the view that you and I can confess truths with our mouths that Jesus is Lord, but actually not believe it to the core of who we are in our hearts and somehow think that you and I are good before God and think that somehow he wants us to have BMWs. And there's nothing wrong with a BMW if you have a BMW. What I'm saying is we think that when we come to God and God becomes our father, of course, he wouldn't give us suffering. But that's not what the Bible teaches. All over the Bible, you will see saints, those who believe in Jesus for their salvation, who suffer, suffer immensely, greatly. There's never been a time that God's people have not suffered. This type of thinking is just not found in the Bible. Demons can confess that Jesus is God. It does not mean that they are saved. As a matter of fact, let's look at the text that many people quote and misquote, and that's Romans 10.10. It says, For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is 
saved. So, so get this, all who believe in their hearts and confess with their mouths that Jesus is who he says he is and has done what he says he has done and will do what he says he will do are in the family. But I want you to notice that means you will suffer. And, and Pastor Michael is going to get into that next week because the Apostle Paul is going to continue this thought. But, but we get to be like our big brother Jesus. He suffered. So why would we think that he somehow gets a crown of thorns and you and I get like a tiara, which is weird if you're a dude, right? But like, why do we think like that? Jesus faced rejection. Therefore, we should face rejection. We should expect that not everyone's going to like us. You're not bacon, right? Not even everyone likes bacon, which I don't even have an understanding for. Let's keep moving. Jesus denied himself. He left, he left heaven where angels sung his presence. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The foundations of the earth shook. He left that and he put on meat and he moved into the neighborhood to be suffered, to reject, to be rejected. People would deny him and he calls us to deny ourselves. You might be thinking, all right, I understand it. Okay, suffering's part of it. But to call it a privilege? Really? I mean, that's a bit of a stretch, don't you think? Well, actually, I don't think. I don't think that. And I'll tell you why I don't think that. Because that was never the thought of the apostles. And so look with me at Acts 5.41. They were proclaiming the good news of Jesus. Okay? The church was being, well, it was birthed. And now they're going out and they're proclaiming the, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. And they are being persecuted. And listen to what the text says. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer, to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. Oh, God, let that be our mindset. Is that your mindset? If not, ask God to change your mind. You change your mind. Because it may come in your lifetime. See, the gospel has never triumphed apart from some measure of sacrifice, suffering, and the Spirit of God. Never. The church has been birthed by the blood of the martyrs. The blood of Christ is the thing that feeds the vine and we're his branches. I want you to know it's a real thing. So as we continue in Romans 8, you will see that this creation groans because of the futility of this broken world. Persecution, calamities, disease, death, and many other sufferings you and I will encounter in this life. Some because of your sin and some because not anything you've done. It's just because this is a fractured world. I was talking with a fellow pastor just before this, and he did three funerals this week of people we deeply love and know. It's a broken world. Suffering is a reality. But I want you to remember something. We've been adopted by a father. We've been adopted by a Father who loves us, who lives with us by His Spirit, who cares for us, <laughs> and, and, and disciplines us as we need because He loves us. We're heirs with all that is in Christ. 
This is an amazing privilege. We are fully privileged sons and daughters because of grace. We've been fully adopted in Christ. And because of that, you and I, we have the best father ever. We have the best father ever. So no matter how hard this life gets, you can be assured he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And to die truly is gain. Truly is gain. To live is Christ. And it's just a mist. So hang in there because there will come a day when your faith becomes sight and you'll live with your Father forever in a place that Jesus has gone to prepare for those who trust in Him. Amen? Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Harvest Community Church. We invite you to join us at any one of our four campuses located in Catanning, Petrolia Valley, Indiana, and Freeport. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org.